So when I was young, when I was like 10 or so, I had a favorite show, a show that I always was eager to watch and I was uh, ready when it would come on the TV. I would be ready at, for the very beginning, the introduction. And that was the wide world of sports. Do you remember that? I mean, it's way, way old show. So if you're like under 45, you won't remember it probably. You'll have to look it up. But it was a sports variety show. Came on once a week, and they looked at different kinds of sports around the world, but not your normal like baseball and football. It was like kind of off the beaten path sports, like, like horse racing, a lot of boxing, like judo, uh, like table tennis, and drag racing, and things like that. It was like fascinating. I loved watching it. But the best part of the show was the introduction, it was that 30 second clip. And I would love to show it to you today, but here's our problem. Because we're live streaming, because we're on uh, YouTube and Facebook, they tend to cut down or pause the program when we show things that are, like, have copyright. So I can't show it. If you were here in person, uh, we would show it. But instead, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read you the introduction and picture the voice of Jim McKay, picture the, the drums, the timpani, boom, 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 like, kind of like that, and you'll, you'll, you'll get it. And if you still need to watch it, uh, please watch it after the sermon. That's all I ask. <laughs> all right. Uh, but it says this, the beginning. It says, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. The thrill of victory. Say it with me. The agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. I loved it. The part that I loved more than anything else was that, those three words, <laughs> the agony of defeat, right? I mean, it, it would grip me, and I would watch, and so if you were to see the video, you would see a, uh, a, a guy coming down the ski slope. His name was Vinko Bogota, and I kind of tried to put it in a little sequence here to give you a, an idea, but he's, I don't know if you can see it, but he's coming down the slopes, and at the very end, he falls, and he just flails off, off the jump and lands in the crowd, and you can see him tumbling. And for this program, that captured the essence of the agony of defeat. And this is what Victor Bogota was known for. He was not really a good ski jumper from Yugoslavia. He was never in the Olympics. He never got a medal. This is what he was known for. This moment, the agony of defeat. He was talking, I saw a little interview with him, and he was talking about years later, uh, he was uh, at a sports awards uh, show, and Muhammad Ali actually came up and got his autograph because of his defeat, right? I wonder what it is about us that we love the thrill of victory, but we identify with the agony of defeat. I feel like that's something that we all know. We all understand that. We all, whether we're in athletics or not, we understand what the thrill of victory is. We've had those moments, but... We also, we understand that agony of defeat. Even in the church, we have the same thing. We just call it different names. But in the church, if you hear people talk about it, you hear them talk about these, these thrills of victory, which we call mountaintop experiences, right? We're on the mountaintop. And I'm sure it comes from retreats. Whenever you go to a retreat, you know, or camps or whatever it is, maybe mission trips, you have this moment where you just feel so close to God. Where when you, when you sit down and pray, you can pray for a long, long time. When you worship, you're thrilled. And when you read God's word, you just keep flipping from the next passage to the passage. You can't stop. You feel so close to the Lord. But then we also have this word called valleys. 
we're in the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of decision, or whatever it may be. Maybe some would regard it as the pit of despair that we find ourselves in once in a while, where we just, we struggle. Our faith is weakened, or our faith seems to, to stop altogether. We struggle in prayer. We can't even find the motivation to stay focused. When we worship, the songs are just boring and old. When we come to God's Word, we just can't get into it, and therefore it gets dusty and dry, and we, we struggle. We have these moments in the life of every Christian. We know what it's like to have that time of victory, but also that time of defeat. So is this normal? And what do we do? What do we do about it? As Christians, how do we respond to these moments where we, we feel really close to the Lord, but then almost immediately we fail and we struggle? Well, today we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to have Peter under our microscope. We're going to be looking at Peter and his response to the Lord during this time. And, and Peter's going to have this cool moment where he, it's almost like his highlight reel, where he has this moment of victory where he, he declares who the Lord is, and, and we'll talk about that this morning, but it's really a strong statement of our Christian faith. It's what the church is built on. It's a great moment. But then we just move on to the very next paragraph, and we see Peter struggling. And at one moment, he speaks for the Lord, and the next moment, he speaks for Satan. And you might identify with that. You might relate to that, where you have these moments where you're doing really good, and then you struggle. But see, what Satan wants throughout this is he wants Peter to be defined by his failure, to be defined by his, the agony of defeat. But we're going to see today that we're not defined by that. We're defined by what we confess, by our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the victory. He's the one that gives us all victories. So today we'll be looking at that we're defined by the victory in Christ, but we understand that it is a hard journey. And so we will look to see what the Lord says, how we are to live our lives after we confess and as we follow him. So first, let's look at the victory. We'll see that victory comes when we seek God's interests above all else. Victory comes when we seek God's interest, his perspective before anything else. See, the church is built on this foundation, this foundation of confessing that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior. In, in this passage right here in Matthew, the whole book leads up to this passage here in chapter 16. Everything comes right up to this moment, and after this, it takes on a new direction as he goes right towards Jerusalem. But here's what he says in verse 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All this takes place in this little town, this region north, on the north part of Israel called Caesarea Philippi. This region was known by many things. It had many name changes over the years. But in the Old Testament, it was Balgad, which means master luck. Kind of had this place. It was a lucky place to go. A little later, it would be renamed. When Alexander the Great kind of came through, he renamed it after one of the Greek gods, Pan. He's the, the god of the wilderness, of desolate places. And then after that, it was named Caesarea Philippi, after Philip the Tetrarch. And so it had this kind of a synchronistic vibe going on. While there's temples of, uh, of, of, for Pan, there was also this place of luck, and then this, this kind of almost emperor worship type thing going on. It, it meant all these different things, and that's where Jesus went and said, who do people say I am? And the answers were interesting. The one was John the Baptist, which might be funny if you're following along and, and you kind of know what had happened to John the Baptist. He had just been beheaded. He had been killed just before that, but yet people still, you know, I mean, remember, this is before Instagram, before paparazzi and all that. They didn't have this instant news. So for many of them, they just like, remember John the Baptist, he, he was a, an incredible man, he taught, this man is incredible, it, maybe it's the same person. Maybe he just changed his name or whatever. So we understand that. But then some others, a little more realistic, were saying, were saying this, maybe this is Elijah, Maybe that's who this is, and, and that's reasonable, because remember, Elijah never died. He was taken up to, to heaven in a chariot of fire, and in Micah, it says, look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so some were saying, that day is coming, this has to be Elijah. But others were saying, Jeremiah, or another prophet. That's because Moses talked about, in the last days, there'll be prophets that come, and some thought, maybe it's Jeremiah, he was great, this guy's great. So it all makes sense. But, but really, it doesn't matter what the people thought. Jesus said, that's interesting. But now, here's what matters. Who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? So the disciples, would they take a risk? And would they say something, uh, something different? Or would they kind of go with the, the popular opinion of saying, we think you're Elijah? But Peter steps forward, and whenever Peter steps forward, you almost have to hold your breath, like, man, because he can be really great some days, and he can really be a fool other days. But he steps forward, and this is one of his bright moments. He had taken, he had heard what Jesus said. He had heard maybe even what demons had said when, when he cast them out, and they would claim, they would say, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. But whatever happened, the Lord had been working in him, and he'd been processing this. And so when Jesus said, who do you think I am? He knew exactly what to say. And he came forward and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Really, this moment here is, it's, it's the, the crown moment here in this book. We, are, we have finally identified who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. Messiah means the anointed one. Maybe in your Bible it says the Christ. Same word, different languages. But you're the anointed one. The anointed one from the Old Testament we know are three different peoples. You have prophets that are anointed. You have priests who are anointed. And you have kings who are anointed. King David, when he was, after he was anointed and he was looking forward to the hope of Israel, he talked about this anointed one. 
who would come, who would bring the, uh, uh, hope back to Israel. And so from, during this point, the people were waiting for this, waiting for this moment, for this person to come who would be anointed, who would bring hope back to Israel. Most likely they saw this as a king who would come and, and, and bring back the glory to Israel. Raise up the flag, kick out the Romans, establish this land, bring it back to the glory days of Solomon. And so at first he says, you are the Messiah, but then he combines it for the first time ever, saying, you are the son of the living God. Here they are in this land of of idols and temples and statues. He says, you are not the son of a dead God. You are not a made up God. You are the son of a living God. The one who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Peter is saying that you are not only the anointed one, but you are deity, you are God, and we will worship you. It's truly a wonderful moment as Peter stepped forward and gives these words, gives this creed, this confession to the church. We live in a culture much like Caesarea Philippi. It's, uh, it's got all kinds of beliefs. And if we asked our culture, as Barna did a few years ago, who is Jesus, you would get all kinds of answers. It seems like most people say that he was a real person. Okay? 95% of people say that he really did exist. Just over 50% would say that, we, yeah, he is God, that we would work, you know, he's worthy to be worshipped. Another 25% just say, yeah, he's a good teacher. He's got some good things to say. Another group just doesn't know what to do with him. It doesn't matter what our culture says. What matters is what do you say? What do you say? Who is Jesus? Can you answer and say he is the Christ? He is the anointed one. He's the son of the living God. This is what our church is built on. All churches, we have been built on this creed, on this confession, saying that Jesus is the one who will worship. He is our king, yet he is God. And he's worthy of our worship. He is the divine one. He's powerful. He's holy. He's existed before all. He is eternal. When Jesus heard Peter say this. He turned to him and he said, surely this didn't come from flesh and blood. This came from the Lord. And that's when he changed his name from Simon Peter to Peter. And he said, on you, this is the foundation that the church has laid. And this is where, kind of almost, I won't go on a tangent, but where the Catholic church will take it in a little different direction. They will say it lies on Peter and he's the beginning of the papacy. But for Protestants, for us, we would say it's not so much on Peter, although he was important in establishing the kingdom. Through the book of Acts, he does open up the doors to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. But more important than just Peter, it's that confession. Saying that it all begins here. That is the victory that we have in Christ. And you can have that victory today, too. If you are to confess, Jesus Christ, you are the God. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. You have received victory. You stand victorious in Christ right there. But interestingly enough, that's not the end of the story. For Peter, the story continues, and we see him failing. We see him struggling. We see him almost uh, being defined by this this failure that he has. 
And this is why this, the, the Christian life is so difficult. It would be great if it just ended right there. We, have, we confess, we have victory, and that's the end of the story. But as we know full well that the Christian life is this day-by-day discipleship where we follow the Lord, and some days we will stumble just like Peter. The reason is because there is a war going on where Satan has not given up, and Satan is fighting till his last breath. And here's what we see here. As we see in verse 21, as Jesus talks about his mission. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord! This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So weird to imagine these stories right next to each other. That Jesus is very clear what it would await him. That now they are going to Jerusalem and he would suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. And that's okay. I mean, if a king is going to establish a, a, a kingdom, you know, there's going to be some struggle. But when he says that I'm going to be killed by them, they're going to kill me. That's when Peter would have no more of it. And he stands up to his rabbi, and this is a break of protocol. Students don't do this to their rabbi. But he stood up to him and, and, and got in his face and said, never will this happen. I am not going to let this happen. You are not going to go to Jerusalem. You are not going to go down that way. And those haunting words from Jesus, get behind me, Satan, must have rung in his ears for some time after this. Where he really must have thought, what am I defined by? Am I defined by my confession or am I defined by speaking the words of Satan? Where once Jesus said, you are a rock that the church is built on. And now he says, you are a rock that's making me stumble. You see the tension that he must have had. How will he be defined? See, we, I think this is hard because here in America and probably other places of the world though, we we equate suffering with something that's bad, and things that are bad are from Satan. But those things that are good and comfortable, they come from God. But here, Jesus reverses everything. He mixes it all up. He says, I, I, am, I am being led by God, and I'm going to be led into a time of suffering, and I'm going to be killed. But that is going to bring glory to God, and don't stand in my way. But Peter, thinking, here's our Messiah, here's our moment where we're going to take him and we're going we're to make him comfortable. We're going we're to make everybody praise him. We're going to have parades for him. This is going to be good because surely that must be from God. But why is that not from God? That was all from Satan. Satan wants Jesus to be comfortable. He wants him to be distracted. Satan would love for Jesus to be king. Go to Jerusalem, 
build an army, rally the troops, stand up against Caesar, make some policy, make some rules, print your own money, establish your borders. That would be great if Jesus did that because it would divert him from the cross. But Jesus says, I am not going that way. I'm not going to be tricked. I'm not going to stumble because Christ, my mission is here to come and suffer because I'm doing something way better than just putting up a flag in Jerusalem. I'm securing salvation for all those who confess that I am the Messiah. I think Peter was just thinking about his own concerns and what he wanted. He wanted things just to be comfortable and have a nice kingdom. And that's much the same way we think. We, even us in the church, we have, we have gone this way. We have thinking that the best thing in this world is to be comfortable and to be satisfied. Let's have some prosperity and let's have some wealth. Let's have some security from those bad people around us. Let's have peace in this kingdom of earth. Let's live a long and satisfying life. Let's have our needs met. How many of us are guilty of putting those values and those goals in our life? We are. They're not all bad. They're not horrible. I'm not saying they're all sin, but I think those are man's concerns. That's what we think about. That's what we want. But now, Jesus says, your problem is you're thinking about man's concerns, not about God's concerns. So what are God's concerns? What are his interests? Well, first and foremost, saving those bad people, those threatening people, and bringing them into salvation, securing them eternal life, to establish not the kingdom of earth, but the kingdom of heaven, not to store up treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. Not to have a long and, and healthy life here on earth, but to have an eternal life with him. Not to have my own needs met, but for us to go meet the needs of others. Those are more along the lines of God's concerns. So Peter stepped into it. But before we're too harsh on Peter, let's remember that we struggle with the same thing. That in this world, if you are walking with Christ, you are going to hear these two voices. You're going to hear the Spirit's voice, which is often a small, quiet voice. And you're going to hear Satan's voice, which I'm going to tell you is not quiet and subtle. It is loud and he's screaming and he's telling you, be comfortable, be happy, find satisfaction in your life. He's also going to be yelling at you and saying, when you fail, that's it. When you have failed for the tenth time or the hundredth time, that's it. God's done with you. He's going to tell you that God has given up on you, that he doesn't want you on his team anymore. That's Satan's voice. He's going to try to def define you by your failure so that you don't remember that you've already been defined by victory because of what Christ has done and because you put your faith in Christ, you are victorious. That victory is far bigger than any failure that you or I will ever fall into. There might be consequences and they might be extreme. But they don't define us in the same way that we've been defined by Christ. Now, what does it look like? Let's apply this. 
Jesus does this for us. We don't even have to do the hard work. He already applies it. He tells us what this victorious church looks like, this group of people that have confessed. What does it look like for them to follow Christ? And he says that they have their, their interest is the interest of God. He says in verse 24, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, that's not, that's not hard, is it? Of course it is. He's saying that life is not going to be easy. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it, will it be for someone to gain the whole world but yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Really quickly, here's what we need to learn. If we have confessed, if we are wanting to walk in victory, this is the path. One, it's deny themselves. Disciples, we need to deny ourselves. Well, do we know how to do that? It's not a message we hear out in the community. That's not a message we hear a lot. But it's a message of the gospel. Deny yourself. How do you deny yourself? Well, first is you probably need to look at what does it look like not to deny myself? What do I want? I want power. I want success. I want comfort. I want luxury. I want security. Then to say, but what does the Lord want? What does the Lord want from me? He wants worship. Not worshiping myself or worshiping others, but to worship him. He wants worship. He wants us to make his name great, to make it known among the nations. He wants us to walk in the light. He wants us, I mean, we could go on and on in talking about this, but really in short, it's being generous, sacrificial, content, being satisfied in him. We have to deny ourselves. I mean, even Jesus did this right before his crucifixion. What did he pray in the garden? Not my will, but your will. We, as men and women who are following Christ, need to pray that daily, not just once, not once in a while, but daily, saying, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my concerns, but your concerns. To give up our lives to serve him. The second thing that he says, though, is just as hard. He says disciples must take up their cross and follow Jesus. To take up their cross and follow Jesus. That means that my goals and your goals, our interests, our concerns, our priorities, each and every day need to be crucified, be nailed to the cross. Where we put up our goals and then we take on the Lord's. He says, take up your cross. And then what does he say? Those two small words. Follow me. Follow me. This again is hard for Americans because it, it hits us right in the center, the core of our being. That we are here for free. We are, Americans are free. We live, live free or die. We want to be trailblazers. We want to be explorers. But never does Jesus say, go be a trailblazer. Go be an explorer. Be the next Ferdinand Magellan of the faith. Find a new way. Find a new way to Jesus. Find a new way to, to God. Never does he say that. He never says, be, just create something on your own. Instead, he always says, follow me. 
But for so many Americans, that's hard because that just goes against everything. We love these, these poems like Evictus, right? You've heard that from William Ernest uh, Hensley. It, it, it ends with this line that I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That I'm in control. I'm undefeated. I'm unconquerable. We like that stuff. We don't like be a follower. But remember, Jesus never said, lead the way. Take the lead. Take charge. Take control. After you. He never says that. He always says, follow me. But that's hard. It's hard to be a follower. In our culture, followers aren't always all that great. Those of you who have kids, who are raising up your kids, when you're trying to encourage them, when they're going off to school, or when they used to go off to school, uh, do you say, did you say, hey, find a group of kids and just follow them. Whatever they do, just do what they do. Right? You'll, you'll be good. We don't say that. We say, go, go be a leader. It doesn't matter what others are doing. You know what is right. You follow your heart. Follow your desires. Whatever. That's the way that we've been taught and we've been raised. So when we hear those words from Jesus saying, follow me, it's hard. Because we don't want to do that. But it's really that simple. It's harder to be an explorer. It's harder to, to create, find a new way. It's much easier just to follow. And Christians, we make it really hard for ourselves. We make it way harder than it needs to be. He has told us what he desires. He's told it many ways through Scripture. But let's be men and women who deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. To ask each day, what do you want from me, Lord? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I, I, I put aside my will and follow you? So as we look at this, who we got to say, who are you following? We will experience the thrill of victory, and we will experience the agony and defeat in this life. The good news is if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you live in victory that's all you know. You know the thrill of victory. God has called you. He's claimed you. He's not letting go of you. And until we reach glory, that's where we'll experience in its fullness. But now we do. We struggle with this. What's my will? What's the Lord's will? What's God's voice? What's Satan's voice? What's the, the, my desires? What's his? We, we will struggle. And sometimes we will fall. And sometimes we will get it wrong. But we're not defined by that. Don't let Satan lie to you just as Peter wasn't defined by that. And he would, he would struggle with this. I think throughout his life, he would try to grasp this. But we see through Peter where he stood and how he stood on Pentecost and preached the gospel of Christ. He stood in victory. My desire is for all of us to stand in victory. For all of us, all of us here, everybody watching, that you would... Put aside your will. And that you would put your faith in Christ. You would call upon him saying, you are my Savior, you are my Lord. I'm going to follow you and you alone. And that you would live a life of victory. Where you take up his cross and follow him.
May we continue to follow Jesus to hear his voice above all else. Amen? Pray with me.